He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our very first episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the history of the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women that serve behind these walls. My name is Anthony. I'm joined in the studio here with Sky. Hi, everyone. This is the introductory episode. We're going to talk about basically the history of Idaho mm-hmm. and then a hopefully brief history of the prison. I Anthony, looking at you. Uh, brief. It's so hard. <laughs> There's so much history to get through. So I think we should start with ourselves. Yeah. 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 Do you want to go first? No, you go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. My name is Sky. Um, I um, have been working out here at the pen. I volunteered uh, starting when I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 2015. I volunteered slash interned here for a couple summers, and then um, I left. I went to Wyoming, and I got my master's degree, and, uh, and then I came back, and I needed a job, and everyone here at the Old Pen was gracious enough to take me back. Oh, and my gosh. Sky gave probably 200 tours in about, I don't know, what, two months? Is that true? <laughs> I mean, that first summer you were here, you gave, like, every other tour i just i do actually remember that now i just remember going like wow (laughs) i can't believe she's so happy i i mean (laughs) like so both so my my undergrad and my graduate degrees are in history and i'm going to get my phd in history and so like history is my whole life and so to be able to find such an awesome site out here in boise that does uh, such awesome stuff uh, i was so happy to be here and i like i remember loving it so much and i was so glad that they took me back out here um but i was born and raised in boise um i've gone to school in utah and in wyoming and then i'll head to texas here soon so um but idaho is my home and and so i get excited about being here and and telling people stories of the the stuff that happened out here so that's me that's great <laughs> Uh, my name is Anthony, and I am also born and raised here in Boise, Idaho. Um, went to Bora High School. So any Bora, go, yeah. yeah, go Lions, go Lions. My mom was a Bora, what? yeah, cool. alum. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I went to College of Idaho and got a degree in history and in music theory and composition. So um, after yeah. that, I worked for the city, the Boise City Department of Arts and History during our city's sesquicentennial, our 150-year anniversary. So if you ever came to the sesqui shop, I was the guy who was smiley and in there and helping <laughs> you with whatever it was because that still was does my that. favorite place. <laughs> um, and then He's I, still smiley and helps you with whatever you want. <laughs> I try. I try. <laughs> um, and then after my contract with the city went up, I uh, this job here at the old pen opened up and I've been here now for five years. So 
Woo, I still don't feel like a specialist, but I He's a liar love because this place there is nothing that he does not know about this prison. It's like, not not entirely true. There it, are a lot of things that I learn every day. There are very few. You can't <laughs> surprise him. I'm always like, Hey, did you know this thing? And he's like, Oh yeah, I read that like six oh, yeah, years ago. That. And I'm yeah. just like, What? <laughs> yeah, he knows everything. Oh uh, <laughs> I don't I don't mean to. I, <laughs> I don't mean to. It's still exciting when you bring things that you're excited about. <laughs> no, it's I just I you know, my first couple of years it was just like Anthony, learn everything that you can because or else just answer the phones. And so, you know, that's where I started. Yeah. It was just digging these things up and you know, a lot of it was revisionism, just like refinding the same stuff and then reinterpreting mm-hmm. it to, you know, because most of it was done in the 90s and mm-hmm. early 2000s. And so now it's mm-hmm. like we have a whole new view to look at all yeah. this history and penology and everything else. So, yeah. Yeah. If you ever need have research questions or anything, yeah, get in touch with Anthony. Um, hopefully he has enough time. <laughs> We're always putting stuff on his I'll, plate, I'm including this podcast. Time. Don't worry. <laughs> I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. When you reach out and ask me about like your grandpa who served mm-hmm. time here in the 30s or something, maybe your grandpa would probably be serving here in the 60s, but your great grandpa, <clears throat> he stole a ham or something and you want to know about it. And then, you know, I love digging those stories up and, mm-hmm. and then hearing your side of the story. So, you know, anything that he told you about his experience or she, uh, as mm-hmm. we get to here, mm-hmm. um, I, that's my favorite thing. So, yeah. Request away. I yeah. love it. Yeah. So should we dig in? So Let's as we said, it. our very first episode, we kind of want to set a basis of the prison. Um, I would imagine most of our listeners are from Idaho, so they may know a lot of this stuff already. A lot of people may have visited the penitentiary a lot mm-hmm. before, but we're hoping to dig a little bit into the history of the state, the history of the site, and then into these inmate stories. Um, we do tell quite a few, um, but I... Um, you know, there's still so much, even in the stories that we do tell, the details that we don't get to, to talk about a little bit. So I think today we are going to start, uh, I'll start with the history of the state of Idaho. And I'm only going to go up to literally until Idaho becomes a state. So I guess really I'm doing the history of a territory. Um, but that's that's when the penitentiary history begins as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so some sources... I mostly found a lot of this information on the reference series on the official Idaho State Historical Society website. Um, always a good place to start because they are, we are the official, the State Historical Society is kind of the official, um, you know, bastion of history, uh, obviously, as our, as the name would suggest. Um, and so if you guys are interested in finding some of these uh, references or you want to find more because they do have more, um, if you go to history.idaho.gov slash reference dash series so um got a lot of information from that um there are some kind of like anecdotes and stuff i took from wikipedia again don't start your research there it's not a great place to start but it can give some good supplemental information as long as it's cited correctly please look at those citations look on the at bottom the citation and just click on them and mm-hmm. yeah those are those are sometimes amazing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's some good trails. stuff and then sometimes, if I needed to, um, I looked at official city websites. So there is evidence of people in what is now Idaho. Um, back about 14,000 years ago, I think I read that in the 1950s, they found artifacts in a cave in Twin Falls that, yeah. that dated all the way back to them. Wow. So, um, you know, prehistory people. Um, and then, of course, up until um, European colonization, Native Americans were the only people in the territory that eventually makes up the state. Um, now, in the state, 
as of 2019, we have five main tribes, the Kootenai, Coeur d'Alene, Nez Perce, and those three are all in the north. And, and then in the south, we have the Shoshone Bannock and the Northern Paiute. Um, and all of these names are going to be pretty familiar. Um, we have a lot of inmates that come from these tribes. Mm -hmm. And then all of them, uh, there's, there's areas, whether they're counties or whether they're cities that are named after um, these tribes as well. There were other tribes that kind of um, occupied parts of Idaho. Um, we've got the Blackfeet, the Crow, the Kalispell. Um, trading events are going to bring people from around, uh, uh, natives from, from the different areas into um, the Idaho area. But not all of them settled here. Most of them, uh, the Kalispell, I think their main reservation is in Washington. Uh, the Blackfeet and the Crow are in Montana. So... Um, so we do have evidence of those tribes here in Idaho. They just um, aren't quote unquote native um, yeah. to the state, which I hate to say because Idaho is, is, a, is a white person construct. But mm -hmm. um, again, we have four different, uh, five different actually uh, Native American reservations in the state. Um, and as many of us know, the reservation system was kind of the U.S. government's way of controlling the land as white people began to settle it. Um, there is a really interesting book I actually read during um, an American Indian class I took during my master's degree. And if you're interested at all in um, kind of digging into the way that the federal government treated Native Americans, um, the, the, uh, they treated them basically like fathers and mothers. The white people were here. Uh, the U.S. government was here to kind of like raise the Native Americans and assimilate them into our culture and um, and I it like breaks my heart but if you're interested in that there's a really excellent book it's by um, a scholar named Kathleen D. Cahill it's called F Federal Fathers and Mothers A Social History of the United States Indian Service 1869 to 1933 um, it's really really good so if yeah. you're interested at all in uh, the way that kind of the reservation system shaped the way that we view Native Americans mm -hmm. and the view that they had um, in the late 19th early 20th century definitely check out that book because um, I don't want to get too into it um, you know it's not necessarily my place to do so and I wish I could say the story was different but you know you and I are capitalizing off the fact that that white people took advantage of mm -hmm. of these natives and took them off their land and yeah. and gave them not like I don't even want to say a portion because that makes it sound like it's a lot right Native Americans currently hold 0.03 percent of land in the state of Idaho wow. where it this was all their yeah. land yeah. it's a little upsetting to me i don't want to get into it mm -hmm. that's not what we're here for again five uh, reservations the nesperus reservation um, mainly the nesperus tribe it's only about 1200 square miles mm -hmm. only about 17,000 and this was in 2000 i don't know why the population numbers were from almost 20 years ago yeah. um, why there isn't any more recent data but as of 2000 17,000 uh, natives lived there Coeur d'Alene reservation again for the Coeur d'Alene tribe 523 square miles about 6,500 people. The Fort Hall Indian Reservation, Shoshone Bannock tribes, uh, 814 square miles, uh, about 6,000. Wow. The Kootenai uh, Reservation, again, the Kootenai tribe, that's a pretty small one. It's up north. Only about 75 people live there. Wow. Um, and the majority of the, the rest of the tribe exists on the Flathead Reservation in western Montana. Okay. That's one of the smaller ones. We don't. I haven't found any inmates from that reservation. I think I found ones from all the rest. Yeah. Um, and then our, the last one we have is the Duck Valley Reservation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the Shoshone Paiute tribes, 450 square miles. Um, and it actually is split evenly between two states, between Idaho and Nevada. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. And then the population there is about 1200. Mm -hmm. So then, um, so natives were, you know, 
the only people here. Mm-hmm. The main European exploration that, that changed that was the Lewis and Clark expedition. They were the first main Europeans to cross through Idaho territory. Some fur trappers had sort of already passed through, but they didn't settle. They just sort of, you know, were on, there's no one to, like, you can sell to the natives and then you move on. Yeah. So Lewis and Clark came through Idaho in 1805. Uh, most of us know this from our, our classes. Um, fourth grade. Yeah. So listen, here's what I remember about fourth grade history <laughs> class. Um, not a lot. Yeah. I remember that we had to make binders so that we could like keep all of our information. Wow. And um, my binder had, do you, do you know American Girl Dolls? So they're like, so they're super fun because I've always been a history nerd. And so these native, these American girl dolls, they have, they're these little characters and they you have dolls that you play with them, but they have stories uh-huh. about their, the, the, these girls in different time periods. Okay. So they had one who was native American. I think her name was Josephine. And I want to say she was from an Idaho tribe. Interesting. Um, so I had like a picture of her on my binder and there was like a, a horse on it. And, <laughs> and then the only thing I remember doing in fourth grade history is we we made salt dough maps of the topography of Idaho. Oh, so we had to like make the mountain ranges and everything. Wow. That's all I remember. So if my history is real rusty and like real incorrect, then yeah. then my apologies. It has been a hot second since yeah. I studied I was Idaho say, history. I 20 years. Uh, I can't remember <laughs> being 10. Yeah. Uh. So, yes. Um, so... Um, for those of us who have not taken history since fourth grade and, and don't remember, um, Lewis and Clark expeditions sent by Thomas Jefferson to explore and map territory gained through the Louisiana Purchase, with mm-hmm. which Jefferson bought from the French in 1803. And actually, Idaho technically wasn't part of that purchase. It actually was all part of the Oregon Territory, which was owned by the British at the time. But they still, they had Manifest Destiny, which are the country was supposed to span from coast to coast. So Lewis and Clark were going to go through and they were going to map all of that out. And that was going to be our country. And I ended up doing exactly that. So Lewis and Clark actually encountered some Lemhi Shoshone natives. And this is kind of one of the first times we have main interactions of Europeans and natives. Sacagawea, who was the main Lewis and Clark guide, was actually born near Salmon. Yeah. So she technically is an Idahoan, but obviously she's much more uh, Shoshone. Mm-hmm. She would obviously uh, describe herself as a, as a tribal member rather than an Idahoan, but yeah. we can at least kind of <laughs> claim that. Um, she is buried in Wyoming, interestingly enough. Really? Yeah, okay. she's buried on the Wind River Reservation, supposedly. It's like a big rumor, but we know she was born uh, in Idaho. Yeah. So. By the time the Europeans show up, the southern tribes are having a really difficult time with the Blackfeet, who are going to, I think, mostly from Montana. Mm -hmm. And the Blackfeet have guns from trappers. And so these southern tribes need to take advantage of the fact that these new Europeans coming in also have guns. And so they not only supply, the whites not only supply the natives with guns, but they also taught them agriculture, which then effectively ended the native way of life. And so then we were able to then parcel them onto reservations and, and create, unfortunately, the system that we have now. So the European peoples in Idaho after Lewis and Clark were mostly fur trappers coming south from French Canada. Mm -hmm. There are a few major forts in Lewiston, which is up north, in Boise, in Pocatello, which is southeast. Um, And then there there were trade posts throughout the area. The Oregon Trail cut through Idaho. And then there were a lot of Mormons who um, settled in Utah and came up north thinking they were still in Utah Uh um, and settled southern, a lot of southern Idaho. So we've got, yeah, we've got a lot of, of LDS in that area. And then, so Idaho becomes a territory in 1863. Abraham Lincoln signs an act of Congress declaring the area the Idaho Territory. Uh, It was created out of the Washington Territory, um, which had been separated from the Oregon Territory. 
And so Lewiston was the original territorial capital because up north was like prime location for mining. And that's what the Idaho Territory and really the early 20th century, I'd say, Idaho was best known for was its mining. Lots of gold, lots of silver. Um, We also have a lot of, you know, natural minerals and Mm -hmm. things like that. So, yeah, so we've got a ton. And yeah, like you'll hear a lot of stories about a lot of miners or families of miners, Mm -hmm. uh, inmates who end up here. Lewiston at the time, um, so, you know, 1860s, 1870s, Lewiston was bigger than Olympia, Washington, Seattle, Washington, and Portland, Oregon combined. Wow. Like, huge. Yeah. Super massive, because there's a ton of stuff to mine up there. Mm -hmm. So then, in 1863, Idaho makes up, uh, the territory makes up the current day shape of Idaho, all of Montana, and all but the south, like, tiniest southwestern part of Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Then in 1864, Montana gets parceled off. So we have um, the shape of Idaho and then part of Wyoming, uh, we actually end up only keeping, other than that corner that already wasn't a part of Idaho, we only keep kind of a little bit above that. So most of Wyoming kind of is parceled off as well. And then in 1868, we get the shapes of current day shapes of Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Yeah. So that's kind of how we get our shape. I think Idaho, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but I think Idaho is like a one of the cooler shapes of the states. <laughs> it's pretty neat. Anyway, do you know how Idaho got its name? I don't. Okay. How? Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is really, really interesting. No one actually knows. There's some speculation that it was a Shoshone word. Yeah. Um, uh, some translation thinks it means like the sun comes up from the mountains or a gem of the mountains. But I was reading one of these resources and it says that like there isn't a word for gem in yeah. any sort of native language because a uh, gem is a very like white person thing. Absolutely. Um, so the story is basically is Congress is they're trying to they want to create a new territory in the Rocky Mountains. And there's this lobbyist named George M. Willing. And he says, listen, we should use this name, Idaho, and it's from the Shoshone word, and this is what it means. And everyone was like, yeah, okay. They didn't actually create the territory of Idaho at that time. They created the Colorado Territory. Uh And supposedly some people who were settling in Colorado wanted to get a claim on that name. So they settled at this place called Idaho Springs. Uh Idaho Springs, Colorado. Because I've always thought that. I've like driven through there, and I'm like, why is that called Idaho Springs? That's because supposedly people settled there and ultimately it ends up that it wasn't even willing who came up with this with this name it was some of those miners who settled in colorado who came up with this word and so at the same time then they create idaho county in washington territory and then that eventually gets parceled into idaho so it's just a made-up name yeah it's not doesn't come from anything it's not cool like pennsylvania or virginia or Uh washington like (laughs) Just as a fake Just word. So that's Idaho. So if you were ever taught that Idaho was a native word, it is not. Yeah. It's just straight up made up. But we have to give uh, credit to George M. Willing for being eccentric and just suggesting Very it. Cool. So it's kind of fun. All right. So as I said, mining was huge. It's really probably the main reason that the area got territorial status in the first place. You've got the gold rush in the Boise Basin, silver and gold in Silver City, uh, gold, lead, silver quartz up in Coeur d'Alene. And Coeur d'Alene was actually the largest producer of gold in the entire territory slash state. It, it uh, up to 80% of the total like numbers of gold 
came from Coeur d'Alene. Yeah. Like 80%. Huge. And then um, Southern Idaho produced a lot more minerals rather than the precious metals, as I said. And all of this is how Idaho gets his nickname, which is... The Gem State. The Gem State. Woo. So, uh, okay. So Lewiston... Wait, I thought it was the Potato State. It <laughs> is the Potato. We love potatoes out here. Yes. But yeah. it's That's not the officially the Potato State. After all the gems are taken up, now it's just... Which if... Yeah. Truly, potatoes are a gem. You can do anything with them. It's true. I love them. <laughs> it is because I'm from Idaho, but you can do anything with potatoes. Okay, so Lewiston was the ter- territorial capital for only three years. Boise became an incorporated city in 1865 and became the territorial capital only a year later in 1866. Now, this is a big controversy. Mm-hmm. So as the gold rush kind of quiets down in northern Idaho, people are like, oh, um, there's not as much up here as we thought. Everyone came real quick and like pulled everything out of the mountains. Like we don't have a lot left <laughs> anymore. And so then this mineral rush, as I said, starts to happen in southwestern Idaho, centered in Idaho City. Mm-hmm. And so Idaho City becomes the largest city. Again, it overtakes Portland, Seattle. It's huge, still huge. And so there's a resolution in late 1864 to have the capital moved from Lewiston to Boise. That um, what's the resolution is actually passed by the ter- territorial legislature on December 7th, um, 1864, six weeks before the territorial legislature session actually legally began. So they did it really sketchy, like back room, like we're going to do this, yeah. we're going to pass it. Um, so the, the move, the motion to move the government to Boise was actually illegal. After litigation, only one vote separated the decision um, of the territorial Supreme Court. So they they end up voting, I think, to say, like, is this legal? Is it not? Mm-hmm. And only one vote kind of separates this. Like, I guess it was legal. I think I was kind of confused about that. But yeah, yeah. But basically, it's like really narrow it's margin. Very back. Room yes. And, yeah, like, because. Yeah. Early Western people are not the most above board people. They will do whatever they want to do to get rich, to be uh, lucrative. And I think that's this is the case in this situation. So the move to Boise is super unpopular in northern Idaho because they just lost their their capital Mm -hmm. status. If you've been to Lewiston now, there's not a ton there. They have a factory that makes the entire town smell really gross. Yeah, is that the Sensi or? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wait, whoa! Shots that? fired, Anthony. No, My no. goodness, I don't remember what factory it is, but like it's a really beautiful town. It's right on the river, but there is this factory that's yeah. like sort of smells everything up. <laughs> um, so again, this move's super unpopular. Um, and it is in violation of a court order. And the territorial governor, his name was Caleb Lyon, and the territorial secretary, they like know that this is unpopular and they're stuck in Lewiston. Um, so they take the territorial seal, they take the territorial archives and the treasury, and they just flee from Lewiston, like in the middle of the night. Yeah. They come down into Boise and they're trying to settle here but Caleb Lyon is really outspoken and he says listen I don't think Native Americans should be massacred and everyone is like what do you mean (laughs) which is ridiculous and so because of this idea that Native Americans should not be massacred he's dismissed as governor so he kind of says like well screw you guys and he takes all of the territory's Indian funds, a total of $46,000, and he takes off in the middle of the night. Just takes off with $46,000. So he doesn't want to massacre the Indians. He just wants to slowly starve them, you know. profit. So nice job, Caleb Lyon. You're top, top top-notch character. Yeah. But anyway, so Boise ends up as the capital. 
Northern Idahoans are a little placated when the University of Idaho is given to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in 1889. And I've heard the story that Boise was given the choice between the university and the prison, <laughs> and they chose the prison because they thought the prison would be more lucrative. So, and we'll get into that here in just a sec. Oh, yes. um, and then you know the story of how Boise got its name, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Okay. But go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. So um, there's kind of two different versions <laughs> of it. And they're both basically from French fur trappers. Mm. So the first one is that these French fur trappers... So Boise is kind of surrounded, not kind of, it is surrounded by desert. There's mm. not anything out there. There's mountains yeah. on one side, desert on the other. And so, and it's it's not like pretty mountains. It's like the sagebrush and the, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. these French fur trappers are climbing over these mountains and, and they come to Boise and they see Boise from, from a ridge. And there's not a lot of trees out here, but because the river runs through Boise, there are more trees than mm-hmm. what they were seeing out there. And so they come in and they, they're yelling Le Bois, Le Bois, which means the trees and Bois is spelled B-O-I-S for those of you who don't speak French or know French. And then the other is that, again, it's mountain men. They named the Boise River uh, La Riviere Boise, B-O-I-S-E-E. So basically it's French. um, And if you've noticed, we do say Boise. Mm -hmm. That is the correct way to pronounce it. Uh, We can, you can usually tell people who aren't from here because they'll say Boise, which I feels, I know it feels wrong saying it like that. So um, it is pronounced Boise. Yeah. The city of trees, which compared to most other places (laughs) that have trees, there are not very many, but comparatively to the rest of of Idaho, there are quite a few trees. So (laughs) Boise as the territory capital was given the territorial prison instead of the university and had the territorial prison for 18 years until Idaho became a state on July 3rd, 1890. And I always like to hold this over my Wyoming students' heads. Uh, it's a week, Idaho became a state a week before Wyoming did. So, yeah, yeah. ha 43rd <laughs> state. Yeah. So, Anthony, I have a little quiz for you. Uh-oh. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Um, you probably know all of these because you, again, you know everything. I might just pause the recording. If I don't, <laughs> look it up real fast. Okay. So um, I want to quiz you on the Idaho State emblems. See oh, if you know no. These. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. This will be fun. Okay. What is the Idaho State bird? That is the blue jay. No? Close. Mountain bluebird. Mountain bluebird. Yeah, there's blue oh, in I it. I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what is the state flower? Syringa? Yeah. Yeah, see, you're all, I don't know any of these. You know all You know, I had a coffee mug (laughs) growing up that had this. Oh, so you just have to remember that mug. I'm I'm picturing, I can see it, yeah. Okay, what is the state song? Oh, Here We Have Idaho. Yes. I don't even know what that sounds like. We should play it. Here we have Idaho. (laughs) We'll just have Anthony sing it. (laughs) Do, do. (laughs) Sorry, I've had to. I've played it before. See, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what is the state gem? Uh, oh my gosh, I, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Is it purple? (laughs) I don't. I think it might be bluish, but like close to that color. I can't think of it right now. It is the star garnet. Garnet. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Is it garnet or garnet? I don't know. My piano G A R N E T. Oh, Garnet. 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 Whatever. Those are the same same letters. Okay. Um. What is the state tree? Douglas fir. A white pine. White pine. That's close right. enough. <laughs> close enough. What is the state horse? Uh, is it the? Uh, oh, I'm thinking of the state fossil. Yes, which is the Hakerman horse. Yes. Uh, is it a Palouse? 
Appaloosa. Yeah. Appaloosa. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. And that was actually the horse that I had on my fourth grade binder with oh. Josephine. Um, so the Hagerman horse, for those of you who don't know, it is actually one of the oldest species of equine. It was called the American zebra. The, its head of it was actually striped like a zebra, but then the rest of its body, I think, was brown. Whoa. Which I don't know how they know that. Yeah. But that's supposedly what it is. That's and it was discovered in Hagerman, Idaho in 1928. So yeah. that is our state fossil. What is the state dance? And this one is actually much more obvious than you would think. Uh, uh, the uh, hustle? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a square dance. Square dance. <laughs> I was going to say something about potatoes. Yeah, like country. Just, I don't you know. know. <laughs> um, what is the state fish? Ooh. I have no idea. It is the cutthroat trout. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh-huh. And then lastly, what is the state insect? Whoa. I have... This, is it a moth? No, sort? but it's the monarch butterfly. The butterfly. So okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were close. Okay. Like I could tell you were I could, you were getting I there. I pictured it. I could I, see I, it on the cut. That always threw me off because I was like, state insect. And right. you just don't think of butterflies as insects, but they are. Yeah. So yeah. um, and then you obviously know this, but for those of you listening, did you know that Idaho is the only state in the union that had a woman design their state seal? Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Um, Emma Edwards, it was a, um, that was who won this contest. There was a contest in 1891 to come up with a new state seal. And she actually, this is what women had to do back then. She actually entered just with her first initial. So she entered as E. Edwards. Oh, so yeah. they wouldn't be partial um, to choosing a woman. And so she won. And what is the, what's the Idaho phrase that we that's on the the seal uh e pluribus no well, i mean uh, exists forever uh, uh esto perpetua esto pur- let it be perpetual yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, is it let it or exist forever or yeah or exist like or yeah. let it be or let i don't be. know yeah, it yeah. but it's perpetual is what that. it is so yeah. yeah so that's pretty cool yeah so that is the brief and again if i got all of that wrong then my apologies um if you want to know more about (laughs) idaho history please go see our colleagues over at the idaho state museum (sighs) they just redid it it's amazing that the museum that i went to when i was a kid my parents also went to when they were kids Mm -hmm. um it was very old very outdated and the what they've set up now is just absolutely incredible like you i i went through it expecting to not not have it be very much but Mm -hmm. like i you just have to like i just had to walk through and not even look there was so much stuff so please go check them out it is super awesome out there please like and follow our facebook page old idaho penitentiary there you can connect with us directly by joining the behind gray walls podcast group if you like the podcast please consider making a donation you can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation. Any donation is appreciated and it will go toward improving the quality of this podcast and enabling us to continue to bring you the stories that we love and we hope that you love too. Anyway, all right, Anthony. So 181890, we become a state, but in 18... 18- 63 we've got a territory and we get the prison in 1872 correct yes all right tell me about it but the this whole thing kind of starts uh december 31st 1868 the territorial legislator here in boise is supposed to find land within the vicinity of of this little boise city this tiny little city that's like five years old now um they're trying to find a place for a new prison. Uh, it's it's in Idaho City, and it's the the one in Idaho City was made out of logs, mm-hmm. and like there were full scale escapes. Like literally, every inmate escapes yeah. 
this happened like every other month. Have like, you been out to see was, that territorial I prison have, out there? Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't, if you go out to Idaho City, they do have. I mean, I, granted, I think it's like kind of been pulled apart. So I don't think yeah. that's what it looked like when inmates were staying there. But it is rudimentary at best. It is. Yeah. Like one of the escapes happened just before they moved everybody here in 1872 to this site that we're at right now. Um, they they gave a trustee. He was the cook, and I think he was in for uh, grand larceny or something. But the guard on duty said he had to run to town. So he gave the keys to this trustee and said, lock everybody up and I'll be back. And, you know, did he lock them up? No, he unlocked the doors and everybody escaped. The guard <laughs> returned to see an empty prison. Uh, so anyway, yes. it had issues. So the territorial government, they, they need to find a place for this new prison. And they, they have to decide, does the territorial government pay for the inmates or does the United States, the federal government, pay for them? Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole debate. So December 31st, they're sent out to find a place so they can build an impenetrable cell house, essentially. And uh, January 1st, 1869, the next day, they drop the ball. Um, they chose this land that we're on mm-hmm. right now. But uh, somebody from the city built a little shack and <laughs> turned in some uh, uh, paper so that he owned the land. Oh, no. And so the, the Idaho statesman, uh, this uh, writer writes, we hardly thought it possible that a party resided in our midst so unprincipled as to attempt to speculate on a prison site to the detriment of not only the city, but the whole territory. Vacate the spot. Disclaim any intention to speculate to the great injury of the citizens and in the future, sin no more against a people who patronize you and peace may be restored. Sin no more. That is. (laughs) It's, (laughs) I mean, they were so mad because like the legislator, they they were supposed to find this space for a while. And then when they finally do, it's too late because this guy, his name's Mr. Benedict, had settled it. Within the month, Mr. Benedict actually signs over the rights to the uh, doesn't even get money for it no he just gives it away for free and he apologizes and says that he actually owned a lot of this land here Uh in in this in this eastern boise area like 40 acres but uh he his buddy told him that you know i'm i'm gonna take that land right there if you don't and so like that night he built that little shack Mm. and he said it was not to get in front of the territorial government, but in, to get in front of his friend who he thought was going to take the oh, okay. land. So, you know, he apologizes profusely and gives the land up. And, uh, you know, it all kind of, it settles. And then they they gather up the money, the funds, and they uh, agree to have the federal government pay for the construction. So uh, on April 2nd, 1870, a, uh, a groundbreaking ceremony is held and people mm-hmm. from Boise all come out. And then on the 4th of July... Uh, in 1870, the 94th anniversary of American independence, this small celebration is held in downtown Boise. Mm-hmm. And uh, citizens flock to to watch this procession that's like the local Fort Boise Military Reserve Band, uh, all the little kids kind of like dancing around, and, <laughs> and any of the citizenry that had carriages all mm-hmm. rode from one end of town to the other, which is like 10 square blocks at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they ended at this little field and had a big picnic and had a like this jolly celebration. They had an orator read the Declaration of Independence. And then they had uh, the Fort Boise soldiers shoot 37 times because at that point there are only 37 states in the Union. So, yeah, it's like this huge thing. After all of this, at about 6 o'clock, everyone came from downtown Boise two miles along this dirt path 
to watch the laying of the cornerstone of the territorial prison. Mm -hmm. And uh, prior to that, the statesman, you know, called for anyone to donate any documents relating to the early settlement of the territory. They said they wanted anything that included information about the town, mementos and letters so that future generations will know who and what their ancestors were. So on our Independence Day, we celebrate the construction of a prison. Yay! (laughs) Um, Let everyone be free except the criminals. (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, you know, this debate on does the federal government pay to house inmates or will the territorial government pay for this? This this goes on the whole year. You know, October 17th, they actually run out of money for construction. And the territorial government is just like, this is ridiculous. We need this to continue. So two days later, they put in funds so that it will be finished. And they finish it by December. Um, So the prison's completed in December of 1870, but it would sit empty as the debate rages on some more on who pays for it. Finally, the federal government agrees to pay $7 a week, so a dollar a day for each uh, inmate that would would serve here. And... uh, yeah, and then pay for any guards or any anything else. And then they would also, the president would hire a U.S. marshal to uh, oversee the, the prison. So that's what they do. So finally, after a whole year of all of this, uh, March 21st, 1872, the first 11 inmates arrived from Idaho City. And uh, they're shackled in a stagecoach, and there are four guards that follow it. The first 11 men are Ahud, who's serving five years for assault with intent to commit murder, Charles LaDuke, who's serving two years for grand larceny, Ongao, four years for manslaughter, Dennis Crowley, 15 years for second-degree murder, Jacob Duke, four years for assault with intent to kill, Mike Donahue, four years for assault with intent to kill, Al Priest and John Black, 15 years for highway robbery, John Thomas, 18 months for grand larceny, Ah Shock, who's serving six years for manslaughter, and then William Scott, three years for grand larceny. So those are the first 11. And I do want to say, and I didn't put this in my outline, but you probably heard a lot of like Asian sounding names, and that probably seems mm-hmm. strange because Idaho is not well known for its Asian right, population. Yeah. But... Um, the you know the railroads as they were being built when so when it was being built across the country it didn't come through Idaho mm-hmm. um, Idaho does obviously have railroads but not the big continental one and a lot of Chinese immigrants would actually work on this railroad but when it was finished um, they didn't have anywhere to go yeah. and since Idaho especially the Boise area had a lot of mining to do um, they came out to mine and so Boise actually got a pretty substantial Chinese yeah. population Absolutely. and I'm sure you know this because you know everything but <laughs> no. Chinese the word Chindin, um, that road is named, um, it's a conglomeration of Chinese garden um, because that's where all the Chinese lived was down yeah. there in Garden City. Yeah. Again, I my dad tells me all of this oh, stuff because, yeah, you know, great. we're big love nerds. That. But anyway, <laughs> back to you. Yeah, so this, this territorial prison, it, ha- it actually had 42 cells, uh, really could only hold 40 men at a mm-hmm. time. One cell was basically a kitchen and mm-hmm. one was turned into a kind of a restroom area. Mm-hmm. Um, so 40 men and, you know, in this early early system, there, there was a, you know, a, a move from the Pennsylvania to the Auburn system. And, mm-hmm. and the Pennsylvania system is all about penitence, where we get the word penitentiary. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're 
you're sitting in solitary confinement so you can foster some sort of uh, penitence Mm -hmm. about your crimes Mm -hmm. and your sins and encourage your own reformation uh, so you don't sin again. Uh, Auburn system, this is basically, let's put you to work all day, and then at night you're in solitary confinement. Um, This would be basically what this prison was run as. Mm -hmm. Uh, But within the first month of this institution opening up, we have our first escapes. Yeah, we've got Ahud, who is serving five years for assault with intent to commit murder. He and this fellow named Al Priest, uh, who's in here for the highway robbery, Al Priest is sentenced to 15 years. And Al is just outside the cell walls. And anytime you were outside of the outside of the main prison, you were wearing a ball and chain, a shackle with mm-hmm. a ball and chain on it, like 20-pound piece of mm-hmm. iron strapped to your ankle. Yep. And Al is stacking some rock, and he asks a guard if he can go in and get a sip of water. So the guard's like, yeah, go ahead, Al. So... He goes back into the cell house. He goes to that one little kitchen cell and reaches into his pocket, pulls out a pair of keys, unshackles his ankle, and he actually climbed up and out the window. And there was a, there, he squeezed through, there's a little area where they, the bars weren't very close together. So he squeezed out of that and started running through the foothills. Uh, the rest of the inmates were actually all on duty digging a ditch around the corner. Mm-hmm. So, so guards didn't realize, you know, they're watching these other men. Finally, one of the guards checks inside, sees the windows open. There's a shackle on the ground. They grab the men, toss them in their cells. They hop on their horses and start chasing this dust cloud that is Al Priest running through the hills. Mm. They forgot to uh, lock one cell, though. They <sighs> forgot to lock Ahud's cell, and he slides his cell open, looks around. He sees the ball and chain on the ground with the key still in it, pulls that nice. out, unshackles his ankle, climbs up and out the same window, and heads towards Boise in the opposite direction and is never seen or heard from ever again originally they actually said that a fellow named on gao escaped Mm -hmm. they didn't even get the correct chinese inmate but they actually talked about the idea that they didn't even think that ahud was even guilty of the crime that he was brought in here for so al priest he makes it out Uh and you know there are so many little ravines and caves and different places he could hide in the foothills over here i mean if you ever hike up there you can see all the different little Mm -hmm. nooks and crannies Um, but not long after, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Marshals sent after him and uh, Robbins, who uh, there's a Robbins Street here in Boise right next to the uh, cemetery over here on Warm Springs, um, named after this deputy mm-hmm. who, you know, was super renowned. We should do a, a story about him because, okay. you know, how he chased so many men down. And, mm. oh, man, he oh, was yeah, such a cool yeah. uh, sheriff back in the day. Anyway, um, they both look for him. They don't find him. Finally, this fella discovers him. Uh, Reinierson was his name. He sees that a couple of his horses are gone, so he starts to track it, and he follows Al Priest way out towards Rock Creek. And uh, apparently he was about 25 miles away, and he looked at him through some uh, looking glass and started following him. But he was kind of hiding underneath this ridge. Oh. So he slowly approached Al, and then let's see. How, this is how they describe it. Uh, Reinierson rushed ahead and stayed just out of sight, of priest until he was able to get close enough and quicker than thought his pursuer was dismounted with his henry rifle leveled and the crack of the gun was so quick that he was hit in the forehead over the right eye just under the hat the ball coming out on the backside through the hat just above the rim priest instantly fell from his horse dead and the body was not disturbed by the pursuers they took the horses and saddles returned to rock creek no way they didn't even take his his body. body yeah they said they didn't have shovels 
And then the next day, another guy came out. He saw the body. He also didn't have a shovel, so he returned. And then, so two days later, Al is buried where he Ugh. fell from his horse. Yikes. Yeah. Oy. So, I mean, this is like one of those crazy stories. Uh, do you think yeah. that Rainier Sim was charged or anything? No, of course not. Of course he not. He was pursuing a fugitive. Exactly. And he, well, he was protecting his own property. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. This, this was kind of the Wild West, you know? I mean, I mean, well, I mean, it was, kind yeah. of. Yeah, yeah it absolutely. was. Um, you know, the, the, Escapes didn't stop with this new institution. They they found that there were still a lot of weak points. Uh, they didn't even have a fence for the first mm-hmm. five years. It wasn't until 1877 that they finally put this 12-foot fence, and there are turrets on each corner with armed guards in them. Uh, but inmates still figured out ways to escape. One, one of my favorites was uh, uh, sometime in the, I think it was 79 or early 80s, these guys add a little chicken coop right up against mm-hmm. the fence. Mm-hmm. And every day mm-hmm. they were putting water on the fence to weaken it and get it moldy and nasty. Uh-huh. And then they, one day during the lunch hour, they kicked through the fence and, and three of them escaped and, uh, you know, eventually recaptured. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's <laughs> very fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so 1878, we have our first hanging at this site. Uh, this young Bannock murderer named Tom Biago, and he lived at Fort Hall Reservation in southeast or kind of eastern Idaho. He thought that his brother was uh, unlawfully, you know, locked up and and given a huge sentence out mm-hmm. here at the institution. And so, you know, he was upset, and there was a lot going on in the state at this point. Uh, up in North Idaho, the, there's a new reservation, and mm-hmm. and the Nez Perce are being pushed into one area Mm -hmm. and you know so the tempers are flaring and this is happening all across the country between uh white settlers and native americans but uh tombiago decides to kill the first white man he comes across and he comes across this young rancher named rodin and uh he ends up picking up his rival and shooting and killing him um he's arrested soon after and brought out here sentenced to hang he felt his arrest was also unlawful of course Mm -hmm. um well, what locked up, he was interviewed and asked why he was hostile. And he said that it was owing to the discontent of the Indians with their agent at Fort Hall and with the Greybeard, meaning his missionary, uh, who had been sent there to teach them. Um, the Camas Prairie, he said, belonged right to the Indians, and mm-hmm. they needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, his hanging was the only one that the public was actually invited to. So mm-hmm. there's this huge myth that you know people from Boise would sit on the foothills and watch the hangings. Thanks a lot, Ghost Adventures. Yes, that that did not happen. Didn't um, happen. There were people who were invited. Those were like sheriffs and you know uh, prosecuting attorneys and and detectives, things like that. Um, but for Tambiago's uh, execution, nearly two hundred and fifty citizens came out to the territorial prison to watch his his hanging, and it was pouring downpour of rain, and all these people came out to witness this. So this kind of you know kind of shows the the issues that were going on mm-hmm. between the native and, yeah. and the white settlers. This is a quote from, from the statesman uh, about Tambiago. He says, when he saw that the people were assembling in and near the prison, he asked what it meant. And when told that it was near the hour of his execution, he said, me no die today. Tomorrow die all right. Ooh. One sleep more than die with a good heart. Uh, he was placed in his cell until the hour, hoping that the chief and his brothers would arrive at the same to save him. He walked to the gallows without issue and took a calm glance at the crowd and, sur- and the surrounding objects and indulged in a grim and somewhat ghastly smile at this scene. Oh, um, boy. Okay, it, so listen. Yes. Um, early Idaho statesman 
we love the Idaho Statesman now, mm-hmm. um, but early early newspaper reporters did not give a hang about reporting things fairly. Absolutely. And so there is so much racism about pretty it's much anyone but random. white people. Yes. Um, yeah. We have found articles on, I think, almost every oh. um, ethnicity, every race yeah. um, that in some way disparages them. And as you heard, they quote him in this supposedly broken English. They do one very similar with um, some, some Chinese inmates as well. It is very, very difficult to hear. And so please just know that if we, if we say something like that, that is not us. It is. We are directly quoting. Yes. Just to show kind of the sentiment of the time. Like this, this quote is a direct piece of that time period. Mm -hmm. And Oh my gosh. He's our first hanging here at the site. There would be nine others. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one wouldn't happen until 1901, so post-statehood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when, you know, Boise becomes the official, the, the prison becomes the official site for all hangings. Yep. Uh, there were other hangings in different towns, and most mm-hmm. of those were either lynch mob, um, you know, individual kills somebody that's prominent yeah. in the v- city. Vigilante and Exactly, yeah. Uh, but most of the hangings after that were done at a county level until uh, 1901 when they were done here okay. so that's you know 1870s that's the just establishment of this site and what would come uh, 1880s there's a fella named fred t dubois and he is running for governor of idaho and he's running on the anti-mormon ticket Yay! Yay. <laughs> and uh he knows that mormons in southeast idaho tend to vote Democratic. They're a huge block, a huge Mm -hmm. block of voters that will not vote for him. And so he devises a new law to uh, make it illegal for Mormons to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So there there are two laws. There's originally there's the polygamy law, which is Mm -hmm. a felony. And it's that's having several wives, um, several marriage partners, mm-hmm. uh, typically the wives. And that was a felony up to $500 fine and a prison term not to exceed five years. Well, Dubois creates a new law called unlawful cohabitation, which is a misdemeanor, comes up with a $300 fine and a prison term not to exceed six months. Unlawful- so can you explain, I was going to say, can you explain what unlawful cohabitation is? That is when a married couple has other women living with Mm -hmm. them like adult women so if there's any speculation because you know there's no official state record that this man has all of these wives that would just be within the church but Mm -hmm. a uh, sheriff can uh, approach a a house and if he sees adult women living there he can consider that unlawful and that's what like because there's not we don't do we have any inmates who come in for polygamy we do like not very many though right yeah and actually those were much later and that's because um and i so just to be upfront i am lds and so Mm -hmm. i will often chime in on these these um lds um inmates so polygamy the lds church did practice this Mm -hmm. um in this time period but again it's not legal they're not legally married to these wives they're married within what we call the covenant of the church and so that's why they can't get a ton of people on polygamy because there isn't any legal record of them being married to more than one person Mm -hmm. which today is also called bigamy Um, we do have some people who come in on bigamy charges yeah and Um, and lincoln actually put created the bigamy laws also in the 1860s so so. that's why i think 
uh, this Dubois instituted this unlawful cohabitation because then you're able to get a lot more of these people that he does not like into jail where then he has a better chance of winning that vote. Also, I do want to say that the Democrats and the Republicans have switched parties since this. So when you say that a lot of Mormons voted Democrat. Yes. That is absolutely not the case anymore. <laughs> so, but it, they actually remain along those same kind of party lines. Mm-hmm. It's just the names have basically been switched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so between 1885 and 1890, there would be 48 Mormon men from southeastern Idaho uh, convicted. 47 for unlawful cohabitation, all punished with a maximum $300 fine and between three to six months sentences, and one for resisting an officer for concealing a polygamist friend. And he was fined $300 and given a year (laughs) sentence. So because he was protecting his friends, he was given a longer sentence, and he had to pay his $100 court fees. Uh, this means 48 men, this this original territorial cell house, how many did it hold? Um, 40. Yeah. So that means... So just... So that's not even, that's not even counting people who are coming in for other stuff. Exactly. So this place is packed. It is packed. And we actually, fortunately, a lot of these men were avid writers and journalists. So we have a couple of writers. Uh, one guy named Nash, he wrote, We found Mr. Dubois to be a generous-hearted gentleman. He gave us a free ride on the UNR <laughs> to Pocatello. The sidewalks were crowded with men of all ages and descriptions watching for a sight of the distinguished guest. This is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, but he would describe, <laughs> like, he, he wrote this great poem. I didn't include that. But uh, he would say, uh, I feel first rate and in contented with my lot, knowing I am here for keeping the commandments of God, and that in the end, if I prove faithful through the trials of my life, I will g- gain life eternal in the kingdom of God. All very LDS language. Yeah, yeah. That we still use today. But he, you know, he still held this. And, and uh, we can see that in Alexander Nephi Stevens, who also left this great journal, which, you know, is like, from the eight, late 1880s, so it really gives us a picture of what day-to-day life in that territorial prison was like. Um, he says on November 21st, uh, 1887, on the tw- uh, it's full, riddled full Yeah, he of, doesn't use uh, punctuation. Yeah, and a lot of misspelled <laughs> words, so let me stumble through this. On the 21st, we stayed in our cells most all day. We went out about an hour and a half. Among the prisoners, they had an old fiddle. We played a few times for them. There was three of us could play a little brother Wilson and brother Anderson and myself. We cheered them up as well we could, and they said it was a change. We then went back to our cells, spent the rest of the day in reading and sitting around. We couldn't get much exercise in our cell. It's about six feet by ten feet. So, yeah, kind of a an idea of what those days are like. And these are, you know... How many men do you think they had packed in these cells? Wow. Yeah. Well, and also in the fact that he mentions two other men by brother, which Mm -hmm. is a very LDS way of identifying other members of the church. Um, So that means that he's in there with people he knows. Yes. And so that, again, that goes back to this idea that we know that um, they are targeting LDS members. Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, because, you know, these guys were so lawful and so kind, uh, the guards that actually let them stay out in the yard uh, mm-hmm. much longer okay. um, and gave them like trustee status. They were kind of the original trustees, a lot of these fellas. So, and what is a trustee? A trustee is an inmate who they're given extra privileges. So they get to sleep sometimes outside the walls. We'll see that later on. Uh, they get to run different departments and kind of oversee other inmates in whatever work it is. And sometimes they're sent on work release. So they get to go into town and do other things. 
Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. So that is kind of our territorial prison. They realize that it's packed. They decide to uh, get some money to construct a new cell house. So 1889, there's some money allotted, and they construct the 1890s cell house, which we still call new cell house, Mm -hmm. uh, even though it's so old now. Um, And it it was basically a mirror of that first cell house. Um, But it included a little side area, which which would later house uh, women for Mm -hmm. a short time Mm -hmm. um, in a little segregated off room. And it had little guard areas and and a little barber shop area. But neither of these cell houses have any sort of plumbing. Mm -hmm. Uh, That will come much, much later. Mm -hmm. So finally, they realized, okay, we've got two cell houses now this is 1890 we still have this big wooden fence that people keep escaping from uh let's let's improve that so 1893 they start construction on this new wall and that would take about a year and a half to complete and they included the giant turrets which we still see today and though the wall was uh 16 to 18 feet high kind of depending on where you look at it and about two feet wide and, and it doesn't go underground, right? It's not doesn't go that deep underground. Not that deep, no, no, just a couple feet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they they would just break chunks of of the fence down as they they constructed it. Uh, finally, it's finished in 1894, and they included their first big sally port, which is that was our entrance. That was the that's the entrance. If you come to the old pen today, that's what you walk through. That was the first entrance for carriages in those days, and later on, uh, motorized vehicles and things. And the warden and his family originally lived on the upstairs rooms. And the inmates constructed all of these, correct? Yes. All these buildings themselves on the walls? Exactly. All in that Auburn style. It's all constructed by convict labor. You were sentenced to hard labor at this institution, and the 1890s would have been rough. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done quite a bit of research. There's one guy who was like, I think he was in for murder. Uh, It's been a while since I looked at his file, but he was like one of the best fellas working in the quarry and so he was training other inmates how to do it and uh he ended up injuring himself and if you look at one of the capstones in the west wall it's kind of behind what is now four house you can Mm -hmm. see his name written up there so like they kind of immortalized him they finish the wall and then they decide they want to construct a new dining hall so in 1895 this this inmate named george hamilton this is an alias and we're gonna have to do a big deep dive into george's Mm -hmm. story sometime but he's brought out here for uh for this robbery of the shepherd with a buddy of his. And uh, the warden called him a draftsman. He had studied architecture. And so warden asked, you know, would you design a dining hall? And George is like, sure, I'm educated. I can do that. And he's put to work. He designs it. He oversees its construction. And if you compare the construction of that building to the territorial prison in the 1890s cell house, like the rows were immaculate. This was an amazing Mm-hmm. building mm-hmm. and at this point there was a, a sign above the front door of the uh, admin building that said 25 cent admission so people were you know flocking out to come and shake george's hand and and admire this building that was basically two tiers and there's a little tiny attic space for a guard to oversee mm-hmm. uh this little dining area there's a guard dining area there's a big kitchen and there was basement compartments uh blacksmith shop carpentry shop a uh, little church area and a plunge bath in the back left corner because prior to that they had a, a trough that they would fill up basically once a week and everybody would get to share some of that water so Yay. great bath time great. nice thick water for Ooh, the last thick couple water. of hours. yeah Ugh. i mean they're all working in the quarry so they're covered in soot <laughs> and dynamite and everything else so um <laughs> So George is released uh, early, about two months early before his sentence would have uh, been up, and he actually 
returns to his original vice that brought him here, uh, to alcohol. And, uh, he tells a guard before he leaves, you know, if, if I can't control my vice, if, if this drink has control of me, I'm going to end it all. And sure enough, he does that. He buys some morphine and overdoses that night. This is 1898. And this is one of those stories that we still see in the news every single day. People returning to their old vices as soon as they leave prison. So Mm -hmm. next year, 1899, more money is allotted for construction of new cell houses because this place is again overpopulated. Mm -hmm. And uh, two and three house construction begins. They actually finish number three house first Mm -hmm. in, in 1909. But the warden at that time, it had been about in that 10 years, I think there are 10 wardens, so like a, a warden a year. Mm. And he walks in, and he takes a little metal spike, and he chips away. Because he notices, right, that the yeah. the, the doors are just sort of hammered into the rock. It's exactly. Not, it's not, it's not, they're not sliding and, cells. Yeah. They're swinging And it's doors. not metal metal c- cells. It's it's all made with sandstone. Oh. And so he uses, that. yeah, he just chisels the rock until the door falls off its hinges. He says, What'd you do for the last 10 years? This is a total waste. And so he, he says, no, this is not going to work. And uh, he has the stone removed, and they construct a barn uh, along the east wall of the prison. And then they use those grounds to assemble the cell house across from a two-house. And that's finished in two years in 1911. And that cell house can hold 160 men. Still no plumbing in there. Mm-hmm. So... That cell house, it, it would be used until the late 1960s. And if you go in, like that's what the territorial prison and 1890 cell house, that's what the inside looked like. But there are four tiers instead of just the three. Because the, the, the bars, if you go inside two house, yeah. you'll see that those bars look very different. Yes. But that was just sort of the style of that bars was the, the style, early years. Exactly. And yeah. so eventually it does change to mm-hmm. the up and down bars that we tend to think of. But these ones are latched. Yes. So um, please come visit and see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, even in the 30s, uh, 20 years after this cell house is constructed, visitors came out and they were like, there's no way that this is humane mm-hmm. because of the smells. Like they had Oof. geothermal heat in there too. So during the winter, it smelled like fairly sulfur. warm. Yeah, but it's oh, sulfur yeah. and just humid. And they don't have flushing toilets or sinks. They have buckets for both of those things. They have honey buckets. That's what they call their toilets. So 80 of these honey buckets just waste sitting there from about 5 p.m. in the evening until 7.30 in the morning. Yuck. I'm surprised more people didn't get sick. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for indoor plumbing. Yes. I, like, I, because we've, I would assume everyone listening to this podcast (laughs) has grown up with indoor plumbing. I cannot imagine not having, I have to go camping for like two days and I'm like, what do you mean I have to use an outhouse? (laughs) I'm not using an outhouse. Yeah. yeah. And to just like, uh, anyway. Yes. It would have been rough. And I bet a lot of people, it was a good thing for, it was a great deterrent to like, whoa, I'm not going back there again. Um, So the the shell of three house that sits vacant and uh one of our our most famous inmates harry orchard uh he is actually put in charge of a shoe factory and he ends up actually buying all the equipment and starts to teach other inmates he becomes kind of a uh head of this 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 factory that made manufactured shoes that went all the way to saint anthony to the industrial mm. schools and to the insane asylum uh which would later become idaho state hospital in, south in and Blackfoot. north yeah that is huge but harry actually comes in 19 uh 1905 
And Idaho's trial of the century is 1908. I kind of skipped over that. We'll get to Harry Orchard in a, probably mm-hmm. a two or three part episode. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 1920s, there is a new movement towards having convict labor to create goods. And mm-hmm. in 1923, a uh, shirt factory begins to be constructed. And mm-hmm. by October, it's completed. And inmates are taught to, to make shirts. They aren't allowed mm-hmm. to make hobby crafts or anything else like that. They essentially work for eight hours a day and make, like, I think a, a dime a day or something. For all the shirts, there would be 200 men, and they could make 220 shirts a day. That's 2,640 shirts made in a single day by wow. these 200 men. And they weren't allowed to do anything else. Like everything else was oh, put wow. on suspension. And Shoot. this this went on from from 1923 until uh, 1933. There's the Haas Cooper Act is is enacted in Congress, and mm-hmm. they say basically it's illegal to sell uh, convict made goods. The Great Depression, you know, is oh. raging, and there's there's no way that prisoners should be competing with these free men who are just you know who dying need, out yeah, there trying the to money. trying to make money. So. That all ends in uh, in 33, but the prison purchases 200 acres of land out at Eagle Island, Yay. which becomes the new place for inmate labor. Which I really did not know that Eagle Island, I mean, I've only been out there a few times, but mm-hmm. I really didn't know that that was prison land, but yeah. everyone who comes in knows already, so <laughs> I yeah, shove I everyone for knowing. Yeah, I used to swim there a lot as a kid, yeah. yeah. Oh. So yeah, I had no idea until mm-hmm. I started working here. Yeah. Like, wow. And they would they would grow and raise so much food and cattle and mm-hmm. you know, they would they had a canning plant back here at this site. So, you know, whatever food they didn't cook and or send to these different state institutions, they would can and and preserve all winter long. And so this prison became completely self-sustaining, especially after the purchase of Eagle Island. So that's in 1933. That all starts. 1942, that territorial prison, everything is gutted. Everything's taken out, and it's converted into a chapel. It's just big room. They have pews. And uh, over the next, like, 20 years, inmates would be sent in there. Uh, our most famous one is uh, James Erard Blue Eagle mm-hmm. was his name. And he, he uh, would paint murals along the wall. And one of my favorite quotes is from an oral history that said that's this inmate talking about how beautiful the murals are. And there was this mural of Jesus uh, and and the eyes were drawn so well that it looked like he was following you oh, around the room. Interesting. It was just, I mean, That's and I've cool. looked at, like, the photos that we have from these murals, they are they are something. Um, sad that we'll get to what happened to uh, them. Yeah. yeah. The 1943, a laundry room is installed in that shirt factory building. They make an extra little section, and that uh Inmates would do later do laundry for Gowan Field and the Mount Home Air Force Base, and uh, they also inserted their tailor shop in there. So, you know, inmates, they're raising their own food, they're quarrying all this stone, they're doing their own plumbing work, electrical work, and they're tailoring their own clothes, they're making their own shoes, everything. I mean, this prison was a city behind walls, mm-hmm. and whatever you need out in the out in the regular population, you need behind these walls. You need barbers and, mm-hmm. and everything else. So mm-hmm. somebody had a task. And if you didn't want to work, you could sit in your cell all day long. And the administration was fine with that. That was mm-hmm. up to you. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, 1947, 
they start making license plates. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would actually average making about 5,000 plates a day. Um, that, that was put into the shirt factory building. And then the next year, 1948, Two Yard is created. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, would, they would build these two big warehouse buildings. One had education areas and one was like vocational training they would teach automotive repair and refrigeration repair and all these things they also had their big baseball diamond out there Yay. yeah the outlaws, the outlaws <laughs> which you know they're they've they're a team from the 1900s you know onwards it's it's and it didn't matter what crime you committed if you wanted mm -hmm. to play on the baseball team on the outlaws you could do it and these guys were yeah, good they were good and yeah. a lot of times there were inmates who played baseball before they even came in mm -hmm. and so they would come in and just rule the roost basically yeah, and yeah. yeah i mean and and I think we talk a lot about the outlaws, but it is important to know that there were other sports teams as well. Like Absolutely. the prison had a softball team and a basketball team. Yeah, and, yeah. and so the inmates, they didn't have to just play baseball. They could mm -hmm. play handball. We have pictures of, of inmates playing handball on the back yeah. of four. I don't even know how to play handball. <laughs> um, Boxing. Oh, they, yes. And they held Golden Gloves tournaments here mm -hmm. in, the, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And they would travel to Pocatello until yeah. an MA escaped. And that's, I was going to say, that's, well, and they used to play baseball outside the walls as yeah, well, right? As yeah. they would go like they would do like a home and an away series yeah. until some inmates decided to escape and then they're like oh yeah guess we'll just have them here then i was just going through some old newspapers from the 20s and there was this this outlaw game and it was at julia davis park and the statesman made such a to-do about harry orchard this this assassin uh who killed you know over 30 people mm -hmm. and lida southard being sent yes. from the prison yep. to go sit in the stands and watch this game i mean People flocked to watch the Outlaws mm -hmm. played, which mm -hmm. is just amazing. And they would play like BSU, the local yeah. university, and yeah. and they would usually win. Yeah. They were really good. Yeah. Uh, the Idaho State, we'll have to talk about that sometime uh -huh. with, with Amber, with our site administrator. She is a baseball fanatic. She is. And uh, she gave a huge presentation about the Outlaws uh, a couple of years ago for the city of Boise. And she always talks about the Idaho Statesman actually sponsored the Outlaws baseball team one year and wrote all these articles about the the players and you know how important baseball was to their rehabilitation and mm -hmm. everything else so it was a good important part of this history <laughs> so two yards created it's this big rec yard essentially they had uh, a basketball court in there and mm -hmm. weightlifting equipment mm -hmm. and things and like that and a football field well. too right and a football field yeah so uh and there were two you know which are still there now these two big guard towers and the guards would be in there you know whenever inmates were in the yard yeah so for those of you who aren't aware if you mm -hmm. go to the botanical gardens that was two yard yeah and so you'll yeah. see those guard towers in there and that's because that is that was sort of the boundary of mm -hmm. two yard yeah and then if you go to to concerts in the summer out yeah. in the botanical gardens they're called the outlaw field concert series because you were sitting where they used to play baseball exactly I love it. I'm such a nerd. It's so fun. Oh, I saw Neil Young last year. Oh, man. Because so Cheryl fun. Crow came last year, oh, too. Yeah. Like, we've been, getting some, we've been getting some good names. The Almond Brothers came yeah. before Greg Almond died oh, recently. Man. Yeah, we got some good stuff. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's fun to be here, like, in the morning because they do all their uh, sound, sound check. checks. Yeah. yeah, so sometimes if you're give, getting a tour, you'll hear music. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, some awesome, famous band. Just, just warming up, no tuning words. their guitars. No yeah, <laughs> it's so cool. So, uh, 1950, there's a new resurgence for construction, and that's it. they they start construction on what we call four house, which is this four tier cell house that could hold 320 men, um, four men per cell. Since 1928, they have plumbing in the cell houses now, and uh, yeah, four man cells. If if you've been in here. 
it's easy to look at those and go, oh, wow, these are pretty spacious compared to these mm-hmm. other cell houses. But you have to just imagine three other bodies in there mm-hmm. with you and how hard that would yeah. truly be. Um, year after four houses completed, uh, maximum security, five houses constructed. And with that building, they construct the first permanent gallows. Uh, prior to that, um, there were nine executions, and all were done with this temporary mm-hmm. set of timber mm-hmm. that they had in an old shed. And every couple of years, they'd pull that out and erect this gallows and hang somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, the very the death row cells before the five house const- was constructed were actually an 1890s cell house down on the ground level facing the Rose Garden. Where the executions took place. Exactly. So the men who were condemned to die, they would actually watch from their cell out into the Rose Garden through the window there, seeing the gallows being constructed prior to their execution. These these gallows and five hours would only be used once in 1957 for a fellow named Raymond Snowden. So that's the last construction at this site, uh, Five House. Um, the 60s, there's there's a new penology is going through this whole thing about rehabilitation and using all these different methods through psychology and therapy, uh, everything else, how to reform these individuals' uh, actions and minds and give them education so that when they leave, they aren't just, you know, quarrying stone and things. They, they can actually get jobs in the real world. Uh, so the 60s is a, a huge era for reform. Lots of help for these guys out here. Then, let's say 68, a new warden uh, named Raymond. Raymond May. Raymond May. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Who he had, stuck on Snowden. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Raymond, Raymond May. <laughs> warden Raymond Snowden. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. He had actually been a, a correctional officer at Alcatraz. You know, the oh. that is the prison for prisoners that are so bad, you know, that they need a, a worse a, prison a than anything island. else. island. Exactly. And so he had worked there. He had worked at McNeil Island Federal mm-hmm. Penitentiary. So he tries to, to enact a new federal prison, and, and Idaho hires him to, to create this new system of corrections, of correcting your path. And so he ch- helps choose this site, ironically, on Pleasant Valley Road, <laughs> um, about 16 miles south, and construction begins. So they're shipping out all these trustees to you know build the new prison, just like they did out here, um, constructing all these cell houses. Back to that time capsule. Mm-hmm. Remember 1870, 4th of July, I they do. put this time yeah. capsule in the ground. 1970, Warden May, he actually asked an inmate to write a history of the institution. And so as this inmate's digging, he's like, hey, one of these old cell houses has a time capsule. They don't know which is the oldest cell house at this time. Oh, wow. Which is an amazing thing to that think about. That is interesting. Right? Yeah. How but would I you mean, not know that? Because they are, I mean, I active, guess if, it's an active prison. They yeah, are historians. They I, are thinking yeah. of it that way. Yeah. And I guess you just come in as a new warden and you just know what buildings are what. And right. You yeah. don't know which is, that's so yeah, interesting. Yeah. So they, they, they take a metal detector and walk around the 1890 <laughs> cell house. Nothing. They go around the chapel and. They get this ping right in the corner, and and this is about July seventh. It's a few days after they were, a couple they were a days late. late. But Raymond May, Captain Joseph Munch, which someone who's a huge character here that we'll talk mm-hmm. about from the sixties, mm-hmm. and several inmates, they actually pull the cornerstone out of the ground, and this 
the governor comes and every, the mayor comes. They all come to watch the unveiling of this, and they uh, break open this box and pull out all these things. They they had uh, the original jewels of Boise uh, Masonic Lodge, a great seal of the territory of Idaho, all these vintage coins from 1866, 67, 69, uh, bills ranging from $0.05 cents to $0.25, cents, a box of quartz samples, a packet of gold dust, a list of officers of Idaho Lodge number one, uh, you know, Masons. There were a lot of yeah. Masons in early history here. Stage line tickets from Boise to Sacramento, Chinese documents and, and money, uh, postmark envelopes, two regular Democratic tickets, two tickets to a German society inauguration, a coupon for one loaf of bread uh-huh. uh, from the Idaho Bakery, a Pacific Coast Almanac, a yearbook of facts from 1870, an 1870 World Almanac, uh, several newspaper publications from the Cincinnati Daily Gazette, San Francisco Chronicle, and the Boise Semi-Weekly News. So after all these are taken out, the Idaho State Historical Society actually is like, you know, we'll take these and, and we'll put them on display. So they, they created this exhibit called A Corner of History, which mm-hmm. I would love to bring mm-hmm. back sometime. Yes. Uh, and it was described as one, of the, as one of the most important caches to come to light in many years. Unfortunately, a lot, a lot of the objects disappeared. Mm. And uh, Captain Joseph like Munch... Like after they've, they've been on display. After they went on display, okay. yeah. And Joseph Munch actually accused the former governor, Samuelson, of stealing them. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so snap. This is, this is all contention. We don't know actually what happened, mm-hmm. but... Captain Munch insists that it was Samuelson. Kind of an interesting little thing imagining. Yeah. We also, but we, I do want to say we do have some of the greatest named governors of all time. Yeah. We have the first Jewish governor, Moses Alexander. Moses. But my Bobby. absolute favorite, Barzilla J. Clark. Barzilla. Barzilla. It's so good. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. We've got such cool history. Oh, man. Anyway, sorry. Okay. I'm coming to the end of the institution. Oh, <laughs> fine. Just kidding, oh, Anthony. Yeah. You're doing great. Uh, in August 10th, 1971, there is a prison riot. And this is, it's like a 110 degree day. A lot of these cell houses, Oof. their air conditioning is not very adequate. So, I mean, that was the spark. There were a lot of things that were going on. Inmates were saying that, you know, there were inmates that were working in the dining hall that had diseases oh. like, that would be communicable and uh, <laughs> that there were rats and rat manure in their fresh water basin. Oh, and man. Also, uh, Raymond May had created what guards and inmates would call the honor dorm. Basically, uh, he turned Five House into this place for all the, the long-term uh, lifers, as you'd call them, to be housed separately from the rest of the, of the prison population because they wanted these young kids to be away from these old-timers who were these, mm-hmm. like, long-time, they're, you know, life sure. criminals and things. Well, they basically gave them free reign in maximum security in Five House to run oh. this site. And so two tunnels were discovered. And after the second tunnel was discovered, Ray uh, returned these guys into the rest of the population. And this is all happening on these super blistering hot days. Oh, yeah. And that is what sets off the spark. Um, inmates end up looting the hospital and shooting up the drugs and doing all this stuff. And uh, after, it takes about a week for this this riot to quell and we'll get into full detail mm-hmm. and all the characters involved in it yeah. in some episode but uh at the end of it one inmate is missing and they actually thought oh. that possibly it was a ruse that he had you know maybe he created this whole thing so that he could so escape his name is bill butler and he's serving a 75 year sentence for murder in the first degree mm-hmm. and uh he's also the head of the table rock jc's which is like 
the club for anybody who wants to get out of this prison and mm. make connections with the outside mm-hmm, world and, mm-hmm. you know, hobnob with some of the top people in Boise. <laughs> well, they find him actually rolled up in a gym mat, bludgeoned and stabbed to death. So that's the 71 riot. Yeah. Uh, guards, you know, it takes a while for them to feel comfortable to re-enter the yard. Mm-hmm. That's not the last one, though. 1973, in March, a uh, final riot occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one is also, it's all these different conditions. The new prison site is almost done. You know, half the population is over there. There aren't enough guards back at this site to serve everybody. There aren't enough guards at the new site to serve everybody. Mm-hmm. There are fires going on. All these things are happening here, and uh, one inmate uh, who we'll get into, his name is Larry Trujillo, he returns to the site all beaten up. That's what he appears to be. Uh, We would later find out that most of it was Mm self-induced so that he could return to the site, but his half-brother spots him and says, look at what they're going to do to us at the new prison site. That riles everybody up. Well, by everybody, I mean about yeah, I was going to say it wasn't it wasn't very many people because yeah. everyone wanted to not have anything to do with it, right? Because exactly. they were like they knew they were going to be transferred out. You yeah. don't want to get in a bunch of trouble, so yeah. they most people just sort of like <sighs> stood around and let them do it, right? Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, they actually went into the deadline area, the sandy oh, area okay. near the wall, and that's where guard, guards are saying if if you're not involved, come over here. And then everybody else, you know, they looted the commissary and. Uh, there's a great photo of one inmate with a cat on his shoulder. It's, it's oh. kind of cute. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so that riot, they end up torching the dining hall. The flames leap over and catch the chapel on fire. Mm-hmm. Fire, and and a lot of the inmates talk about how much they regret that chapel burning down because of these um, beautiful murals and everything mm-hmm. else. How how special it was to them. They did save the prison piano though, they which did. we have on display here. We right? do. Yeah. yeah, in our admin building in the. Uh, where you can watch a video about the history and see photos and not just listen to my voice talk about it or <laughs> your tour guide, you can see it. Uh, there's the piano right there next to the, the screen. So that riot ends and uh, it does not uh, get the men out of here any sooner. They are shipped out in De- on December 3rd, 1973. National Guard is called out. They have helicopters. Uh, all these men are in the back of these army vehicles, shackled, and they're all brought about 16 miles south to Pleasant Valley Road to where the current prison resides. And the site basically sat vacant for about a year as the Historical Society transferred ownership. And uh, if you see, there, there are these signs that say, warning, guard dogs on duty. Those weren't from when the prison was active. That was actually from the Historical Society uh, actually having to hire guard dogs to prevent people who were jumping the wall and looting and doing all this stuff. Yeah, so those are, it's kind of a historiography of this site. It's the history of our history here of the Historical Society trying to prevent any damage happening here. So uh, finally, we opened as a tourist destination on December 14th, 1974, and uh, we still, every year, offer that day as $1 admission. So if you can't afford to come out or if you just want to come do something in December, come tour the site. It's a dollar on December 14th. Wow. Oh, boy. Wow. Was that yes. enough? Did I? I think you did great. <laughs> I'm worried that people won't come visit now because oh, they know everything. Gosh, no, no, just kidding. No, Continue there's so much to know. Yeah. yeah, there's so much to know. And Seriously. your tour guides, if you come and you take a guided tour, You'll still find out plenty. Yes, yeah. This is seriously just an introduction. To I mean, we've had a hundred and oh, 150 we, yeah. few years, yeah. 155 years. 
I mean, plus the thousands before that. Of course. Yeah, I didn't well, even talk about Lake Idaho and where the sandstone came from. Yeah, or anything. we don't. Oh, we don't have time. Do you mind if I get into the women's history real quick? No, I'll be quick. And I skipped that again. Yes, please. No. Do. Yeah. Well, I figured you skipped it because you knew I was doing it. Good. Yes, yeah, I did. That's, that's exactly uh, what happened, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'll be quick, um, just because I my project right now is working on. Um, the female prisoners and um, getting we're hopefully hopefully going to publish a book about the the female inmates for uh, Idaho Women 100, which yes. is the celebration of the 100th anniversary of uh, women in the United States getting the right to vote. Idaho did get it earlier; they got it in 1896. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's my project right now. So I'm really really into the women, and so every episode I will be talking about a female inmate. So I just want to go over the history of the women and the women's ward. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, than, than the men. A, a majority of the stuff that you learn when you come here is going to be about the men and the mm-hmm. way of life for men. Um, we only had 217 women, whereas we had about 13,000 yes. male inmates. So yeah. um, just a tiny, tiny portion, but that doesn't mean that they don't deserve a little bit of attention. Um, so the very first woman came in 1887. Her name was Hennebe. She was um, from Fort Hall, uh, Fort Hall uh, Native American Reservation. Um there weren't any separate accommodations for women. And so she was just kept in the territorial prison with the men. She did get, I think a separate cell, Mm -hmm. um, but she was just in there with everyone. Um, A grand jury found the lack of separate women's facilities, quote, injurious, not only to the health of the prisoners, but also to proper discipline. Um, And so they were real upset that (laughs) she had to stay with these men. So between 1888 and 1895, Um, They didn't have any women in the prison, actually. Any woman who was sentenced to more than a year in Idaho was actually sent to Detroit, Michigan for confinement, which I didn't know that um, until I did research. And so I think if they were were here for like less than a year, they'd just be kept in a county jail. And after that, the prison officials promised to keep women separate in some way. And so they were kind of got that like, quote unquote privilege back I guess so the second woman came in 1895 her name is Margaret Hardy she is real interesting and real terrifying and we'll get into her she's got a great story Um, she was kept in the hospital isolated um, in the hospital but eventually she was sent to the insane asylum in Blackfoot um, because of some um, mental breaks that she had between 1897 and 1905 seven women were sentenced to prison and they were kept up in 1890s I always call it one house there's a lot of different things that we call 1890s new cell house one house we call it a lot of different stuff so all those women were kept in there and then the big catalyst for the separate women's facility was with an inmate named Josie Kensler who we love Josie oh my god um obviously again I won't get into her uh, her story too much right now but the warden because she was she came in by herself she came in 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 1897 she was the only one and so he gave her a private room on the second floor of 1890 cell house he brought a new bed a new mattress he brought pillows and he tried to give the room quote as much air of comfort as possible (laughs) and then and this perhaps this will come as a surprise to no one josie got pregnant Um, the scandal is not even that actually the Mm. scandal comes when she claims that the warden forces her to have an abortion and again I don't want to get into all the details of that but they they end up going to court for it I think the warden and the prison physician were both fired Mm -hmm. um, because of this and that's when they started to be like ooh probably shouldn't keep men and women together 
And then um, there's this young 16-year-old, her name is Ida Larity. She comes in, and because she's so young, everyone is in an uproar about yeah. the fact that she's being kept with all these hardened male criminals who haven't seen a young pretty girl in however many years. Yeah. And so finally they're like, all right, we really need to keep these women separate. So, And re- Idaho at the time was reportedly the only state without a matron in charge of women prisoners. Mm-hmm. So it was time to, to have these women separate. So in 1905, the women actually move out to the warden's old house and then they use inmate labor to build the walls around the structure. Mm-hmm. And then um, warden E.L. Whitney hired his wife as matron and most matrons, all except for the very last one, were just wives of the, the wardens. And this is the only exception, her name is Lulu Rowan and she was hired in 1961. So in 1920, so they're just living in a house, basically in a little shack. I mean, it's not a shack, it's nicer than that, but mm-hmm. um, just a house. Um, and then in 1920, Warden William Cuddy decides to create a quote, thoroughly modern dormitory uh, for the women. This dormitory has concrete floor and roof. It's got seven cells, one bathroom, one kitchen, a central day room. It's surrounded by a yard that the women can take care of, they can spend time in. They also can spend their time caring for the grounds mm-hmm. planting roses and you know landscaping and things like that each cell had a toilet electrical lights windows a steel bar door and two bunks per cell but the cells were so small that if both occupants were trying to get dressed or undressed they had yeah. to take turns yeah. um, and if you come in and see that they're tiny they tiny cells so um, additional beds could be placed in the day room if all 14 bunks were full there is at least one inmate we for sure know this happened to um, her name was Elizabeth Lacey and she was actually claustrophobic and so yeah. being in the small cells really freaked her out so she oh. demanded to be put in the day room so she just slept in the day room daily life in the women's ward they didn't have the uh, edict to do stuff like the men did uh-huh. the women were treated very differently and if, you'll find this as we talk more about women and so they didn't have to work they would garden they would knit they might play games listen to records on the victrola they read books and magazines they could actually keep birds and other pets uh, on like uh, here out out here in the men's area i mean men kept pets anyway and you know we can talk about dennis and things like that but they were actually allowed to keep other pets in the 50s there was one inmate who she came in she was actually a teacher before she was arrested and so she taught some of the younger inmates um and so there was stuff that they could do often and then sometimes they would actually they could go out uh, and work in the warden's house or um you know like maybe cook help cook meals for Mm -hmm. the men or do feasts or whatever if inmates were on good behavior and there's only a few of them then one matron would actually take them into town for like to go see the movies or they could set up like celebrations and you talk about you know Lida went out to the baseball game and actually um, we have reports of some of these women actually being taken out to like Pocatello like the and it's depending on the the matron I think some matrons were a little bit more strict than others Mm -hmm. and some were just like oh they you know they can come out they're human too and so it just kind of depends on the year they could also work in the administration building they could type things like that so kind of depending on skills so this this exists pretty pretty well from about 1905 1920 to 1960 conditions begin to deteriorate in the women's ward and crowding becomes an issue actually me and another coworker were discussing in 1963 14 people alone were admitted that year so there's just people coming in there's enough to fill the bunks but you already have you have the people who are already there and then you have the people who come in the next year so we know for a fact we had overcrowding in 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 the women's ward so they attempt to build a new site for the women in idaho but because of overcrowding of male inmates they Mm -hmm. actually keep the building for men 
they actually do this a couple of times where they try to build a new building and uh, then the men end up taking over because there are too many men. Yeah. So the women's ward here on site actually closes on July 1st, 1968. Current Idaho State female inmates were sent first to the prison in Carson City, Nevada, but inmates actually wrote the warden and complained about uh, complained to the Board of Corrections that there was overcrowding, there was poor medical treatment. It just wasn't, they didn't like it there. So yeah. they ended up being moved to the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. And then, you know, it's kind of weird if you're sentenced in Idaho to be sent to Oregon. Right. So they try to find a place in Idaho again. They they just get bounced around from place to place. So first they try the North Idaho Correctional Institution, which was a former U.S. Air Force radar station. But that also got taken over by the men. Oh my gosh. And so then... As these women, they're just in limbo. And so they actually, a class action lawsuit is filed by the American Civil Liberties Union to try to get these women their own building because this is ridiculous. So they try to relocate them to the campus of State Hospital North in Orofino. So Mm -hmm. it was uh, a mental hospital, you know, what they called an insane asylum and then a mental health hospital. They try to relocate them to that campus. That doesn't work. So then finally... That leads to a correctional facility that's built in Pocatello in 1994. It has a capacity of 108 women. Oh. So any women who uh, are in, who need to be incarcerated are kept there in Pocatello. And that's where it has been since, so for 25 years, wow. that is where that has been. So while the women's ward was open, it was home to a total of 217 women. Uh, the women's ward inmates sometimes referred to themselves as the forgotten women. Yeah. Um, and so I'm kind of here to make sure that they aren't forgotten. And so I, I just kind of I, I'm so happy to be doing this for them and get their stories out there because they are a little bit ignored when we talk about the prison and, and they shouldn't be because their stories are are truly incredible. And so I can't wait to get into those. Yeah. Yeah. Most most tours don't, mm-hmm. you know, lead you out the front doors into the women's ward. Mm-hmm. It kind of ends with, oh, yeah, there's also a women's ward. Go mm-hmm. check that out, I guess. Yeah. After your tours. So we're hoping to like, yeah, unless you have me that. and I like try to talk about women in the, the walls as much as possible. And I'm <laughs> yeah, like, and the yeah. only thing that you can see when you leave is the women. You cannot leave without going into the women's. <laughs> I will take to. you in there if yeah. you need me to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Thank you all for sticking through yeah, to this that's point. Probably and, a long one. Wow, hearing this giant history of this prison, you know, mm-hmm. in this state. I mean, that was that was so much to go through. Yeah. But I think it's a good introduction to uh-huh. to what this podcast is going to be like. And uh, if you wanted a 17 minute version of this podcast, uh-huh. doing time is probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you and should, it comes with pictures. You guys should, if you don't come in to watch the video, you can just watch it on YouTube. Yes. It's called Doing Time with an um, apostrophe at the end of mm-hmm. doing. Not doing. Yeah, doing. Doing time. To my, my favorite part of the video that we show here at the penitentiary. She married him and buried him in the most western western accent possible. It's I I hear it constantly as I sit at the front desk. It makes me laugh every time. (laughs) Every time. I think it is so funny. Married him and buried him. I like the part where you say irons. (laughs) (laughs) Irons. Yeah. So next week we'll get into our first inmate stories. Yes. Well, do your own time and do your own number. Yeah. We'll see you next week. See you next week.